Well, before there was Oprah, before there was The View, when I was a kid, there was Art Linkletter. Art Linkletter was this national show that was on in the daytime. Uh, and the only reason I know was only because those days I had to stay home from school from being sick or whatever. Uh, there's only three channels in St. Louis where I grew up and you had to pick one and that was the only thing that was on. And every now and then it was kind of interesting. And in the 70s, he kind of developed a bit where he would do this thing called Kids Say the Darndest Things. And uh, this is, I want to show a clip. Resolution's terrible. It's in the 70s. Uh, and same with people who grew up in the 70s. Their resolution's terrible too. <laughs> but it's one of these things where you kind of, you know, he talks about Jesus's miracle of turning water into wine. Let's take a moment and watch this. What's your favorite Bible story? About the wine. Where? Where did it happen? When Jesus, when Jesus was born. When Jesus went where? At the wedding. At the wedding. What did he turn? What did he? How did he make the wine? With his power. Out of what? Did he make the wine? With water. That's right. Now, when Jesus made the water into wine at the wedding, that's the story. What do we learn from that story? We learned the more wine we get, the better the wedding is. Now, when you understand what the Bible says about this Jesus turning water into wine, you realize that she is not entirely wrong. In fact, she's not wrong really at all. John, we call it miracles. And this is, we'll find out, the first public miracle Jesus did, but it really wasn't all that public. The people who only know about it are Jesus' mother, some disciples, and some waiters there at a wedding party. So it's not really public, but it's a, what John calls a sign. He calls all the, what we would call miracles signs. And it's because it's not just a miracle to show the power of Jesus, but it was a sign. It's like a sign. It, it points to something beyond itself. The, the amazing thing is not the it, the miracle. The it is the sign. That's what it signifies. Let me show you what I mean. When you get toward the end of the Gospel of John and he describes, okay, here's why I wrote everything I wrote. He says this in chapter 20, verse 30. He says, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. John was one of them. He did all kinds, but he says, which are not recorded in this book. So he did so many, I'm not talking about any of those here, but these, the ones I record, and he, re he records seven signs plus the resurrection. So he's very selective. These I've selected carefully, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that just means the Messiah, the King, the true King, the Son of God, the, the human embodiment of God. He talked about that in chapter one, and that by believing in what the sign signifies, by believing, you may have life. And you can kind of think of that word in all capital L O or L I F E. That's what John means, that you may have life in his name. So, so John is, is choosing very carefully his signs, and so he chose them to signify something for us to understand about Jesus that we really crucially need to catch, and if we catch it, if we catch what it signifies, we're going to want to follow him. 
The question we have to ask when we read this miracle, this sign of Jesus turning water into wine at a wedding feast is, why did John choose this? Why is it the first? And what is it about it that we should get that's going to make us, if we really get it, if we don't, it won't work, but if we get it, if we get what it signifies, we will really want to follow Jesus. Let's just dive right in. Chapter two, verse one. John says this, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, here's the thing, is that Jesus is invited to the wedding, and his disciples are invited to the wedding because well, Jesus was either a relative to the wedding couple or a family, longtime family friend to the wedding couple. We know that because his mother is also there. She's not just an invited guest. Jesus' mother is somebody on the inside so that she knows when nobody else does that they've, they've run out of wine. And she not just knows it, but she, sense, she has some sort of a sense of responsibility to solve the problem. She might be in charge of the wine. I don't know, but somehow she's extremely motivated and she's very motivated because she really cares about this family friend or relative because see, in that culture, the essential for a wedding was the feast and the essential for the feast was the wine. If you ran out of wine, you ruin the feast and if the feast is ruined, in a culture of honor and shame, like the culture of that time, it would ruin your reputation in the community forever. Nobody would ever forget that you couldn't fulfill your obligation when you invited people to come to the wedding. So she's extremely motivated, so she, she turns to Jesus. She knows something about Jesus that he might be able, if he wants to solve this problem, he can. So she just simply says, they have no more wine. Now, the next verse is super interesting because it shows us a little bit of a dynamic between the adult Jesus and his mother. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic to look at all the gospels and how they portray that. But it's kind of, let's just watch how it happens here. So Jesus says this, woman, why do you involve me? Who's, why do I have to solve the problem of wine? I'm just coming to the wedding. Why do you have to turn to me? But it says, and he says, Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now this hour thing here is if you read through the Gospel of John once and this is your first time, this is the first time you're kind of seeing that word and it doesn't, you just kind of read on. But if you read it through a second time and a third time, you realize that word about Jesus's hour is repeated over and over again because it specifies that God has a specific time about Jesus's death and about Jesus's eventual return. That's what his hour is always pointing to. And so in some way, Jesus is signifying by that phrase that what you're asking me to do would in some way either hasten my hour or it would point to my hour in some way. And so it says that his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So you have a sense here where his mother's obviously had these kinds of interactions with Jesus before where she, you know, she asks him to do something and he comes back with some super cryptic, mysterious response and you know, it would throw anybody else off, but she's like moving forward as if he's just going to do it because she clearly expects him to solve the problem. 
And so she just says to the servants, just do what he tells you. It's an interesting dynamic to see. And the reason why she expected Jesus to solve the problem is because in some way she knew that he could. And she knew that because of his character, his kindness, his love, he would. And so it goes on and it says in verse six, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, probably to cleanse themselves before they ate, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, and this is real illustrative language, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. They just filled these huge water jars of 20 to 30 gallons, filled them all the way up to the brim to where they're just almost ready to overflow from the lip of the top. So then it goes on, verse eight says, then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Nobody knows this is going on. A big miracle's happening and only a few people see it, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. So the master of the banquet goes on and it says, then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. It goes on and it says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. In the Bible, for somebody to legitimately have glory, that's only God. So he he said in chapter one, Jesus is God who became human. And so through this sign in some way, it revealed that he was God. Well, I guess because wine is aged, the very thing of water turning to wine is kind of impossible because aging is the very process that wine is made. And that's part of what made it the best and the choicest. So he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. You have to admit, right? Regardless what you think of Jesus, what you think of the Bible, what you think of church, what you think of Christianity, this miracle is really strange. here's, Here's God who created the universe, who became human, and he uses all of his glorious power to prevent a catering disaster. It's just sort of strange that that would be a big deal. And it's just one of seven signs that John would choose and reject all, all the others. Why this? And it's not just to prevent a catering disaster, but it's the excessive way that he did it. 180 gallons. And if you're doing the math at home, that's 908 bottles of wine. Sounds like a song. 908 bottles of wine to, to, at, at, a, at a wedding. It, 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 what, what's going on here? What is this a sign of? Why is this so crucial for you to understand what's happening here so that you will want to follow Jesus? It helps to understand that in Jesus' day, in Greek culture, in Roman culture, in Jewish culture, wine was a universal symbol of joy and flourishing. 
And John, the gospel, is filled with these kinds of universal symbols. And he uses these symbols over and over to really make these symbols walk on all fours, to have a poetic reality of the human condition. So in John, in a world of darkness, Jesus is light. In a world of thirst, Jesus is water that never runs out forever. In a world of hunger, Jesus is the bread of life. What is it? It's in those words of Mary, they have no more wine. The Jesus in a world where there is no more wine is the wine. He's the joy. There is no more joy. There is no more joy, but Jesus is the joy. It's as if you could take those words, there is no more wine, and make a huge sign over this world and over this culture. Because it's ironic that in our culture, we have never been freer to focus on our own joy, our own way. I mean, never in history, I don't think, have people been more empowered with repetitive messaging from everybody that you should pursue your own joy, your own way. And yet it's ironic because the more we're told to pursue and the more we do focus on our own joy, our own way, the numbers go the exact opposite direction that far fewer, fewer people are experiencing joy in our culture. I just read any study, read anything about how the culture is doing on that. Well, I could show you different quotes. I could have different statistics. There's a lot of things I rejected, just like John. You have to come up with a message and reject the others. And so I want to just show you one clip from actor Dax Shepard talking about his own life. It's about a minute long. Let's just take a moment and watch this. They're paying me a ton of money. People recognize me at the airport. I'm doing everything I had dreamt of doing for 30 years. It all came true. And I am the least happy I've ever been in my life. I'm closest to not wanting to be alive ever, as I've ever been. And I have every single thing on paper that I wanted. And that was a very weird, I feel grateful for this. Because I was able to say, of something much more profound is broken. Because up to then, I could tell myself, well, if I had money, I wouldn't need to do this. If I, had, if I was doing the thing I wanted to do, that right. would solve right. everything. Yeah, but yeah. I think a lot of us proceed through life thinking we would be happy if. We would have self-esteem if. We would know contentment if. And those are illusions that most people don't get to find out are illusions. And I got to find out it's an illusion. Super honest interview in this podcast, YouTube podcast, off camera. He, he says, you know, for me, I always thought if I had, if I just had, if I just, and then I got it and realized, okay, no, 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 there's something, no, 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 there's something way deeper that's broken in me than anything here is going to be able to solve. Yeah, all this, all this cultural messaging of how you find your wine is an illusion, so here's the sign. In a world where there is no more wine, no more real joy, somehow Jesus' hour, the hour of his crucifixion and the hour of his coming is to restore 
in a very significant way, in an excessively abundant kind of way, ridiculously overflowing to the brim kind of way, the joy that was lost ever since brokenness entered the world in Genesis 3. But the joy in this sign is not just the wine. It's the feast. It's the feast that the hour is pointing to. And this, let me give you an example. In an Old Testament book, we call it the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, in the book of Isaiah, written about 700 years before Jesus was born, and there are other passages like this, but there's a passage that describes in very poetic language what it's going to be when heaven comes back to earth. And so here's what it says in Isaiah chapter 25. It says this in verse six, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty, I just want to repeat it every time I see it, that this, when you see in your English Bible, all capital L-O-R-D, that's, that's translating the Hebrew word Yahweh. That's the Hebrew name for God, which was an old Hebrew form of the verb, he is, the I am. He's the I am. He's the source of all existence. He's the giver of all life. And so on this mountain, the I am almighty, he will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats. Now, if you're a vegetarian and you're all of a sudden stressing because you think you're going to have to eat brisket when Jesus returns, that's not, this is using symbols, and in those days, again, these symbols meant abundance and joy and feasting, uh, the best of meats and the finest of wines. It goes on and says, he will swallow up death forever, forever. The sovereign I am, Yahweh himself, will wipe away the tears from all faces. In that day, they will say, surely this is our God, we trusted in him and he saved us. Now, I just want you to catch when the Bible says saved, it's not ever talking about having your sins forgiven so that you can go to heaven when you die. I mean, I mean that is true, but that's not what it means to be saved. That's, that's something that was added centuries after the Bible was written. Saved means to be restored forever to what God originally meant for you and meant for this world to be. This is our God. Death has been swallowed up forever. That was never intended. He will wipe away every tear from our eyes. That was never intended. Surely this is our God. And, and we trusted in him. And boy, did it pay off. He saved us. He restored us. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Us. Rejoice and be glad and his salvation. So what does all that language, all that imagery in that Old Testament passage have to do with Jesus attending a wedding feast and turning 180 gallons of water into the best, choicest wine to keep a celebrating feast celebrating? Well, I think quite a bit. John thought quite a bit. I'm going to reject all the others. I'm going to pick seven. This is going to be the first. Because there's something about this that shows not just who Jesus is, but what, what his coming and his purpose is all about. What he's going to do, the reason for his 
hour of his death and his being raised from the dead and his coming again to restore, to swallow up death, to wipe away every tear. And this is our God. We trusted in him and it was so worth it because the best wine is served at the end when Jesus comes and it's a feast. It is us together as the people of Jesus rejoicing together. It's a feast. This first sign, how does this first sign, why it's so important, what does Jesus do in this first sign that he's going to do of all the things he could have done, heal the sick, he could have raised somebody from the dead, he could have restored somebody who'd been blind all their lives to sight, he'll do that. He could have done that as his first sign to show the essence of who he is and why he came, but he didn't do any of that. He turned 180 gallons of water into the best choicest wine so he could keep celebrating people celebrating at a feast. That's a sign. It's a sign that shows you why you should want to follow Jesus. Because what does that tell you about Jesus? It tells you that the reason he died and the reason he was raised from the dead and he's coming again, the whole point, the whole thing about his hour and the whole reason he came and suffered and became human and all, the whole agenda is so that he could not make you religious, but so that he could restore you to joy. That that's his will for you. That's why he wanted to die for you, was so that he could restore you to joy, excessive joy, abundant joy, overflowing joy. Now, Peter says in Acts chapter three, that's going to happen when he returns to restore all things. But then he says an interesting phrase. He says, but right now, between now and then, we have times of refreshing from the presence of the Lord. There's times of glimpses. There's times of little foreshadowing shadows, you might say, of what it's all about, this feast, this wine. We have it now in times of refreshing. We have it now, not just us and Jesus, but we have it now with the feast, not just the wine, but the feast, not just me alone with Jesus as part that, but me as being part of the people, the people of Jesus. And we had a a group of people here, college students here on Tuesday night, we have our college ministry called Veritas. And it was, yeah. there you go. Do you go to Veritas? Yep. All right. Well, then you'll know I'm lying when I say this. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> you'll know I'm telling the truth that they said, okay, what, how, just fill out on a card, a brief sentence of what, how has God shown his faithfulness in your life this year? College students wrote out these cards and they put them on the, a wall in the foyer. And I saw them and I, I, I just thought, you know, I'm just going to pick, I picked about seven of them that I want to show you here because I think it kind of relates to this sign. It says, here's one comment, God brought me back to him when I was hopeless. Another said, God gave me hope when I was at the lowest of the lows. Here's another. God provided comfort and hope in a battle against depression. Another's like that. It says, when I felt depressed and alone, God sent me the greatest friends to pull me out of it and to encourage me in my faith when I had so many doubts. Here's another. God has shown me so much unconditional love 
and happiness. This last one, I found joy again. I found joy again. Now again, this is times of refreshing. We all know there's two steps forward, one step back. We're all realists to know it's not just them and Jesus that brought about these changes. It's, it's them and Jesus, but it's the being with the people of Jesus together. That's a large part of what they're talking about here with God restoring joy into their lives. Now, let's be honest, that's the hardest part. Attending the feast, that's where it's kind of the hardest decision. It's so much easier to stay home. It's so much hard to be around people and all the things you have to navigate around crowds. But the hardest thing about being around people is the people. Because, see, we're still on this side of the resurrection. We're, we're not at the part yet where every tear is wiped away. We're not at the part yet where death is swallowed up. We're, not, we're, at, the, we're at the hard part. We're at the part where there's, we live in a world where there is no more wine, and we're kind of empty ourselves in a lot of ways. So there's these challenges of getting mad at each other. There's conflicts. There's things we get irritated about each other. There's ways that we sort of just bother each other, and it's hard to navigate. And there are times of refreshing that come when it it goes well. But a lot of times it's just kind of hard. That's why the Bible more than 50 times talks about one another in the New Testament, because the one anothering is how you experience right now the wine of Jesus, the joy of Jesus together with the people of Jesus. It's a process. And that's what spiritual growth is all about. But the more you grow in that process, the less you're going to live like those who have no more wine. Because you're going to start to be seeing the ways that the reason Jesus came, the reason he died and rose from the dead and he's coming again is so that you could have this excessive, abundant joy that only comes from him and you'll have times of refreshing now before that. It's those words, those other words that Mary said to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. That's how the water was turned to wine. They did whatever Jesus told them. That's the hard part. (laughs) But you'll want to if you'll understand that his will for you is to turn your water into the best wine aged and saved for last and to begin that process even now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I'm reminded of your words in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 13, where you say that your will for all your disciples, not just those who are with you then, but all those who will believe in you through their message like us, that your will is that they would have the full measure of your joy within them. The full measure of your joy within them is why you came. It's the sign John wants us to catch, why we want, should want to follow you and do whatever you say. Help us to not be fooled by the illusion of those who have no more wine. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand to receive God's blessing? Let's just do it from that verse right there that Jesus prayed. May God fill you. May God give you the fullness of his joy. The measure of his joy within him would be within you. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. Have a great week.